Last week, at the end of Genesis chapter 15, we concluded with this principle. If you're going to live a life of faith, you must learn to wait. Waiting is a really big part of the life of faith. And human beings, so you and I, people, are not naturally good at waiting. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or experienced it firsthand. So just on Friday evening, my family and I, we were going out to eat after our kids' annual piano recital. And we were driving from the place where the recital was to the restaurant. It was about a five-minute drive, both places right here in town. But it was after 7 p.m. It was like 7.30 p.m. And so our kids, understandably, were incredibly hungry. And so as we're driving to the restaurant, one of my kids asked, Dad, is the restaurant, is the restaurant really far away? And the, the tone, the body language was like, because I'm going to die of starvation any second. You know, that, that was like the idea behind the question. And I was so happy. I said, I said, no, 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 it's really close. You know, it's not, it's not far away at all. And then the child said, how much longer until we get there? And again, I was just like so excited to answer this question. Because normally, once you get that question as a parent driving in the car with young kids, you're in trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if, if, it's, if the answer is, hey, don't worry about it. We got, we got an hour. We got two hours. We got 30 minutes. You are in for sometimes a difficult conversation. But how much longer until we get there? And I was so happy. I was like, like less than two minutes. I mean, we are under a mile from pulling into the parking lot of the restaurant. And then the child was also pleasantly surprised, and the conversation was over. At least I thought. <laughs> About 45 seconds later, this same child <clears throat> announced, Dad, this is not really close. This is taking forever. And there was several things that went through my head in that moment, but one of them was, this is what I must look like to God so often. <laughs> I think this is why God, part of why God gives us children is so that we can see how he must view us. You can't wait 45 seconds you know, to, to get to the restaurant. We are so bad at waiting. And this is not just children. This is adults. I am bad at waiting. You are bad at waiting. But the Bible makes it clear. If you're going to live a life of faith, you must learn to wait. Now remember, just a quick recap of what we discussed last week. Faith is believing. That's what it is. Faith is believing. And biblical faith, faith that justifies, faith that makes you righteous, is believing in God's words, which we have in the Bible. Specifically, Christian faith is believing in God's promise to save you through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. So we believe God's words. We believe God's promises. And we don't just believe that they are God's words. We actually agree that they're true. And we don't just agree that they're true. We actually trust in them. That's what faith is. You trust in the words, the promises of God, meaning you make decisions in your life that only make sense if His promises are true. That's faith. And if we want to live a life of faith, we're going to have to learn to wait. Abram, in the book of Genesis, says he had faith. 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram was a man of faith. 
Abram left everything he knew, his whole life, all of his family and friends, extended family in the land of Ur in Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. He traveled hundreds of miles to the west to the land of Canaan. And he did it because he believed the word of God. He believed the promises of God. He did it by faith. Then he lived there. And he extravagantly and publicly worshipped God among dangerous pagan people. He did it by faith. He rescued his nephew Lot from those same dangerous pagan people. Went on a very dangerous expedition. Fought in a battle. And he did it by faith. He did it because he believed the promises of God. He honored the priest of God, Melchizedek. Gave him a tenth of all of his wealth by faith. And... He believed that God would give him a son. Even though he was around 85 years old, his wife, Sarai, is around 75 years old. They've likely been married for around 60 years. They've never been able to conceive a child. And so at the end of chapter 15, God explains how all this is going to happen. He says, Abram, you're going to have to wait for these things. Okay, you're going to get a son, but you're going to have to be patient. It's not happening today. And you're going to get the land. You're going to inherit the promised land, but it's actually not going to be you that gets it. It's going to be your descendants 400 years from now after they are enslaved in a foreign nation. Then he explains why it's going to happen this way. And then God strongly reaffirms his covenant through this ritual where where God actually appears to Abram in a remarkable way. And then God says, okay, now wait. You're going to have to wait and keep waiting. And for all of Abram's remarkable faith, it is the waiting that trips him up. It's the waiting. He believes God can do whatever he says he will do, even make two elderly, infertile people get pregnant, but he has a hard time waiting. Chapter 16, in many ways, is a case study on what happens when we don't wait for God. Plays out in three scenes. Scene number one, we'll call Sarai's plan. Verse one, Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan, 10 years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. Now, if you've been following along through our study of the book of Genesis, then all kinds of little alarm bells should be going off in your brain right about now. This is obviously not going to end well. You say, well, why not? Why is this such a bad idea? Sarai's assessment of the situation in many ways is totally correct. So her first observation is the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. This is actually correct. She understands rightly that God is the author of life elsewhere in the scriptures. It says in Psalm 139 verse 13, for it was you, God, who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The psalmist says in verse 16, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. So Sarai correctly understands the sovereignty of God, that God is the one who gives life. God is the one who takes life away. 
And so it is accurate to say she has not been able to conceive because God has not allowed her to conceive for whatever reason. In addition to that, God never mentions Sarai in his promise to Abram. Have you noticed this? If you go back to chapter 15, God says to Abram, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. So we know Abram is going to be the biological father, but God has not said anything about the mother, at least not yet. Also, important to understand in this cultural setting, having a son was really important. It was important for your immediate family. It was important for your extended family. It was important for your community, your civilization. Progeny, descendants, a son was really, really important. And so it was considered, in this culture, it was considered totally normal, though maybe tragic, but at least normal for a man to take a second wife if his wife, his first wife, was unable to conceive children. Now, I think Abram and Sarai know that they shouldn't be taking their cues from the surrounding culture. They live in a wicked, pagan culture. But the point is that this course of action, it would have seemed, I think, like common sense to them. This, this wasn't like, like to us, it's very taboo, very like, what, he took a second wife? That's so inappropriate. But in this culture, this would have seemed normal. They didn't have in vitro fertilization. They didn't have hormone therapy. They didn't have doctors. And so if you couldn't get pregnant, this was the remedy. This time and place in history. So why then should we have the sense as readers that this is such a bad idea? Well, there's several reasons. But the clearest reason is the literary features of the text itself. And you don't have to be a linguist. You do not have to be a Hebrew scholar to catch this. This exchange that we just read between Abram and Sarai, it sounds very familiar. Even just with a cursory reading of the English translation of the text. Why does it sound familiar? Look at verse 3 again. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar her Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram. Do you remember Genesis chapter 3? The first marriage, the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 6 says, so she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden, this is the moment when sin entered the world. And with it, death. In Genesis 16.3, our passage this morning, is an identical literary construction to the exact moment that fractured creation. And this is not a coincidence. In the Christian Standard Bible, which is the translation we're reading from. It says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. In the English Standard Version, it says it this way. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, which captures the same idea, but it's probably closer to the original language. And there's only one other place in the Bible where this particular phrase is used. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Any guesses as to where it is? Genesis 3, verse 17 God is speaking, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Alarm bells. 
That's what should be happening as we read Genesis 16. We should be thinking, oh no, (laughs) I've seen this movie before. Don't do it, Abram. Now, quick side note for husbands. I thought about titling this message, How to Be a Terrible Husband, (laughs) but it's not... It's not, strictly speaking, about marriage. But I want to just, I want to make a point here. Abram makes the same mistake as Adam. That's clear from the text. And what is his mistake? His mistake is not categorically, husbands, you should never listen to the voice of your wife. That's not the idea at all. In fact, as a husband, you should always consider your wife. Her thoughts, her opinions, her wisdom, her intuition... She should be the loudest voice in your soul apart from God himself in his word. And I would say even you should often defer to her wisdom, defer to her intuition when it's appropriate. Certainly defer to her preferences often as a way to serve her and love her, put her before yourself, but never, never when she wants to violate God's commands. Never when she wants to violate God's design. And Sarai's plan in this instance, Genesis 16, is a clear violation of God's design. Just like Eve in the garden clearly was disobeying a command of God and Adam just went along with it. The same thing is happening here. And I think Abram, just like Adam, knew exactly what they were doing and why it was wrong. In Genesis 2.24, The scriptures say, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. There's nowhere in the Bible that explicitly condemns polygamy. But there are many instances of polygamy in the Bible, and it always goes bad. Always. And what God teaches about marriage is that two become one. That's what marriage is. Not three become one. Not three become two ones. (laughs) Some weird marriage triangle pyramid scheme thing. Marriage is one husband, one wife, one marriage. That is God's design. And every time in the Bible when, when people violate that design, it creates massive, massive problems. When God came to Abram in Genesis 12, he first gives him the promises. He did not give them to Abram, the single man. Hey, you're going to have a son, you're going to have descendants, it's going to be amazing. Go pick a wife, figure it out. He, he comes to Abram. Abram is 75 years old, and Abram is married. He has a one flesh relationship with Sarai, which means... All of the promises implicitly are given to Sarai as well because the two are one. So God cares about the ends, but he also cares deeply about the means. That's really important. God has an end goal in mind. He he promises Abram, this is what's going to happen. But God cares also about the way they get there. So, question. Why would Abram go along with a plan he knew violated God's design. Why does he do it? Well, the text doesn't tell us. I'm sure he was struggling with waiting on God, but also, I think Adam, like Abram, was passive. He was a passive, bad husband. 
in this instance. Now, I don't think he was always a bad husband, but in this instance, he was passive. So instead of lovingly washing his wife with the truth of God's word, like Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, this is what he should have done. He should have said, baby, listen, I know this is hard. I know it's difficult. I know it looks crazy that God would give us a son in our old age, but remember his promise. Remember his design for marriage. He should have leaned in. He should have strengthened her. He should have washed her with the truth that they had from God, but instead, he punts. He punts. He doesn't initiate. He doesn't lead. In loving humility, he passively follows the lead of his wife, which is not loving at all. Now, how does it turn out for them? Scene two, the plan backfires, which we knew it would. (laughs) The plan backfires. Verse four, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. The indication here is that Abram slept with Hagar one time and she conceives immediately. She's pregnant. And so in many ways, the plan is going perfectly. This is exactly what they wanted to happen. But then it says, when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress, that's Sarai, became contemptible to her. Contempt is thinking you are better than somebody else. That's what it means. It's looking down on someone else. They are inferior to you. And so Hagar, the slave, looks with contempt on her mistress. The young slave looks with contempt on the old matriarch of the family, which is totally inappropriate, but you can understand why this would happen. Sarai is very old. Hagar is presumably very young. Sarai is infertile. Hagar is apparently super fertile. And Abram is a very powerful man, and now Hagar is also his wife, which would have come with a degree of prestige, influence, power, position, And she's conceived a child for him, which is, again, really important. Proverbs 30, verse 21 says this. Under three things, the earth trembles. Under four, it cannot bear up. A slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food. An unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. I think the author of Proverbs probably had this exact situation in mind when he wrote this. And the idea is the situation becomes very dysfunctional very quickly, and the reason is because it is a reversal of God's design. In Proverbs, this is what he's talking about. All of these things, they go against the natural order of the world. A slave who becomes king, a fool who is filled with food. That's not the way the world is supposed to work. And a maidservant, when she displaces her mistress... Verse 5, And Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now this is Abram's opportunity to be a man. What, what he could have done, what he should have done in this situation, is he should have stepped in and he should have said, You know what? You're right. Now, in one sense, Sarai's not right. (laughs) Abram's not completely responsible. This was her idea, after all. This was her proposal. So she proposed, and then she's trying to call down the judgment of God when her idea involved going against God's design (laughs) for marriage. So, so in one sense, it's it's irrational, it's illogical, which often happens to people in their emotional distress. 
But what Abram could have done, what he should have done, is man up and say, you're right. You are right that I have much responsibility to own in this situation. I should, have not, I should not have allowed us to go along with this. He should have apologized. He should have sought his wife's forgiveness. He should have owned his failed leadership. He should have comforted her in an incredibly painful, difficult situation. He should have reassured her. Listen, we've been married 60 years. I love you. You're my real wife. This was a huge mistake. We're going to figure out a way out of this mess. He should have stepped in. He should have gently but firmly corrected Hagar and said, hey, listen, you cannot treat Sarai this way. This is unacceptable. You need to respect her. You need to serve her. You need to be humble towards her. He doesn't do any of that. He stays the course of being passive and selfish. Verse 6, Abram replied to Sarai, here, your slave is in your power. Do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. See what he does? Basically, Abram says, leave me out of this. <laughs> this is between you and her. And he just washes his hands of the situation. And when I was studying this passage this week, what jumped off the page at me is how appallingly cowardly this is. I mean, this is, this is pure cowardice. And I, I have seen this, I've been guilty of this, but I've seen it in married men so, so many times. So many, so many men, married men, are like Abram. Where there's this, you, you, you read Genesis chapter 14, 15, and you're like, man, Abram is a stud. This guy is wild. He has, he has so much bravery and courage and faith, and he just trusts God. You remember when Abram took 318 men and he chased down four kings? And he's like, I don't care if I die. I don't care if we're outmatched. I got to go save my nephew. And you look at that and you think, what a stud. I mean, this guy is so brave. He's so full of courage. He doesn't care about risking his life. And, and here's what I've noticed about men, husbands, is you, you would die for your wife. You'd take a bullet. You'd step in front of traffic. You would die for your wife and kids. You are brave. You are courageous in that way. But you are terrified to lead through family dysfunction. <laughs> You, you will not, you're, you're terrified to step into domestic dysfunction. That's what's happening here. Abram, he'll go to war, but when things get crazy at home, he says, nope, not going there, not involving myself in that. I've heard it said there's no pain like family pain. I've experienced that. Family pain is terrible. Marital pain is terrible. Pain with your kids your extended family is terrible. It's difficult. But it's going to come, brothers and sisters. Some of you are in the middle of it right now. But no matter where you're at, it's going to come. It's going to come either because of sin within your family or sin done to your family. But when it comes, God's design is that husbands lead through it. Husbands initiate. Husbands lead the family out of that dysfunction. Trusting God, laying their lives down in humility. How do you do that? Well, I, I don't know. It depends on the situation, but men, 
Husbands, you are to lead out in confessing your marital failures and dysfunctions and getting help at a minimum. You lead in that. You are to lead out in owning your failures and repenting to your wife, even if you're not the only one to blame in the situation, which you almost never will be. (laughs) Abram's not the only one to blame in this situation, but he should have taken ownership. Husbands lead out, take ownership. Own what you can own. Husbands, you are to lead out in dealing with difficult situations with your kids. So when your kids are struggling, you step in. You, you love your kids. You figure out how to get at their heart. Don't just wait for your wife to tell you what to do. Don't just wait for your wife to tell you, hey, I think something's wrong with this child. You should be leading in that area. You are to lead in dealing with difficult situations with your extended family. You should be pursuing godly counsel in the church, maybe from a professional if necessary. You are to lead in desperately seeking God in prayer on your own and with your wife. And there's a million more things, but just at a basic level, when there is family dysfunction, family pain in the home, husbands lead through it, lead out of it. But tragically, way too often, it's, it is wives who are way more engaged in these activities, who, who are way more ready to step in and just say like, hey, we need help. We need to talk to somebody. We need to see a counselor. We need to pray about this. Shouldn't be that way, brothers and sisters. You men be men. It's okay to have brokenness. It's okay to have dysfunction. That's expected. We're sinful. But you lead through it and out of it. Abram passively puts the responsibility back on his wife. He passes the buck. He says, nope. You take care of this. You leave me out of this, and the situation gets worse. It gets so bad that God has to intervene. Scene three, God intervenes. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her, this is Hagar after she runs away, by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. Now, who's the angel of the Lord in this scene? It's really clear. Again, you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar here. This is God. This is God speaking. He doesn't speak on behalf of God. He doesn't say this is what the Lord says. He says, I will greatly multiply your offspring. There's a lot of scholarly debate, pages and pages and pages written in the commentaries as to why the title angel of the Lord is used. And we're not going to get into that. (laughs) But it's clear that this is not an angel, strictly speaking, in the typical sense. This is some manifestation of the presence of God himself. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, you've conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all his relatives. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roi. For she said, In this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. That is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roi. It is between Kadesh and Bered. 
So God intervenes in the situation, probably saves Hagar and the unborn child's lives. She's trying to make her way back to Egypt through the desert by herself. It's not going to end well. What are we supposed to take from this? That's the end, chapter 16. Well, there's one more verse. But the lesson I believe here for us is spelled out in four names. Four names that reveal God's character in this exchange between Hagar and the angel of the Lord, or God himself. Name number one is Hagar, slave of Sarai. And it's not so much the meaning of Hagar's name that is significant here, it is who says it. You notice as you read chapter 16, God is the only character in the story who says Hagar's name. To Abram and to Sarai, she's the slave. They dehumanize her. They, they, they objectify her. They, they view her as an object for their utility. She can help us get a baby. She's the slave woman. But God, God draws near to Hagar. And he speaks her name. And there's no other, this is interesting. There is no other place in the Bible that I'm aware of where God speaks to a woman and addresses her by name. This is the only instance in all of the scriptures. And she's not a great woman. She's not a famous woman. She's not a powerful woman. Other than Jesus, obviously he speaks to many women, but, but God the Father speaking directly to a woman, and he calls her by name, which is incredible. Tells us the type of God that we serve and we worship. Name number two, Ishmael. Ishmael in Hebrew means the Lord hears. God says, you are to name your unborn son Ishmael because the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. When you name your son, he, he wants her to know, I hear you. Name number three, El Roi. Verse 13 again, so she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roi. For she said, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me. This is the only place in the entire Bible, again, where a person confers a name to God. Normally it's the other way around. God tells us what to call him. And God has many names. Many, many names. This is the only place in the Bible where a person confers a name to God. And God allows it in this instance. And the meaning of El Roi is God of seeing or God who sees. And then the fourth name is Bir Lahai Roi, which is the well of the living one who sees me. So application what do we do with all this? One point. If you want to wait for God in faith, you must learn to live in his presence. I think this is, this is the idea in Genesis 16. There's so many applications that flow from this, just from a relational standpoint, from an ownership standpoint, from a faith standpoint. But the overarching theme is this, it is this interaction. It is such a sharp contrast. You have, you have Abram and Sarai, the chosen man and woman of God who have the promises of God, and they abandon the promises. They try to make it happen on their own. And then you have Hagar. And she has her own sin to deal with. She shouldn't be looking with contempt on her mistress. But in many ways, she's a victim. <laughs> she's an outcast. She's a slave dying in the desert by herself. And the God of the universe approaches her and he says, I hear you. I see you. I'm with you. If you want to wait for God in faith, you must learn to live in his presence. Verse 15, it closes like this. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. 
Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So God intervenes, Hagar returns, her son is born. And who is it that names the son Ishmael? The Lord hears. Well, it's Abram. Abram names his son. And as Abram names his son, who was conceived in sin because he wouldn't wait for God, he's reminded, Abram, I hear you. (laughs) I am a God who hears you. And I have to think there is a twinge of irony. This is a rebuke to Abram. Why didn't you cry out for me? Why didn't you cry out to me in your difficult season of waiting? Abram, God sees you. He was there in your very presence every moment of every painful day as you tried month after month to get pregnant with no success. I didn't forget about you. I see you. I hear you even when it seems like I don't. I think it's easy for us to, to, especially when we read stories like the life of Abraham, it's easy to think, man, if God appeared to me as a flaming fire pot (laughs) and spoke audibly, that's what happened in the last chapter. If that happened to me, of course I'd believe him. Of course I would trust him like Abram did. But do you realize that Abram, even though he had these incredible supernatural encounters with God, miraculous revelations from God, he went years and years without hearing anything from God. Years. So he had these amazing encounters, amazing promises, and then nothing for years. And God reminds him here, just because you can't physically see me or audibly hear me doesn't mean I don't see you doesn't mean I don't hear you. It doesn't mean I'm not with you. And the same is true for us. The same is true for each one of you guys. God sees you right now. Do you know that? God hears you. God is with you right now. And whatever pain you're in, whatever sin you're struggling with, whatever difficult circumstances you're dealing with, God sees, God hears God loves you. He wants to comfort you. He wants to redeem and restore and lead you into joy. But you have to trust him. You have to trust him. And you will never trust him if you don't make a conscious decision in faith to live in his presence. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in the presence of God? Well, if God hears and God sees and God knows you and he invites you to know him, the logical response is, is to engage in a relationship with him. That's the logical response. In a dialogue with him. Do you know, you, every one of you in this room, you are more privileged in one sense than Abram. If you are alive today and you have access to a Bible, you are more privileged than Abram. You have a far greater and clearer revelation of who God is, what he promises, what he's done, what he's doing, You can hear from God all the time in his word. Abram didn't have a Bible. He had these few brief interactions that he had to cling to year after year after year. We have it all spelled out for us in a book. You can speak to God all the time through prayer. And so living in his presence means daily, serious, meaningful pursuit of a relationship with him through reading the Bible and prayer. It's the boring stuff. Read your Bible, pray. 
Read your Bible, pray. You just hear that over and over and over and over in church. But don't think about it in those terms. Reading your Bible and praying is living in the presence of your Creator. It's experiencing revelation from God like Abram did when he appeared as a flaming firepot in this dramatic, overwhelming fashion. You can experience that. And living in the presence of God means like living, living like Jesus is in the room. <laughs> living like Jesus is in the room. One commentator I read this week said this, the life of Christian faith means trusting that God's way is always the best way. No matter how far-fetched, how impractical, how delayed, how impossible it may seem. So not just engaging in relationship. That's That's not the only aspect of living in the presence of God, but submitting to His Lordship. If you are not submitting to God's Lordship, then you're not taking Him seriously. You don't understand who He is. He's my authority. He gets to tell me what to do. Now, here's a very, very important question to consider as we close. Can you honestly say before the Lord that you are living in His presence day by day, moment by moment? Is this characteristic of your life? You're living in His presence. There's a dialogue going on between you and the Lord. You're reading His Word. You're responding in prayer. You're you're trying by faith, not perfectly, but trying to walk in obedience. If not, over time, you will default to not living by faith. That's just the way it works. I mean, (laughs) there is no way around it. It is inescapable. If you don't live in the presence of God, you will not wait for Him in faith. And for some of you, that means open sin and rebellion. It means laziness. It means when the cat is away, the mice play. Have you ever heard that phrase? (laughs) If you don't live in God's presence, you just say, well, I guess I can just do whatever I want. You just indulge the flesh. You just pursue all of your own natural desires. That's one way to not wait for God in faith, but there's another way. It's harder to detect, therefore much more dangerous. The other way of not waiting in faith is the way of Abram. In Genesis 16, Abram doesn't just go to Sodom and Gomorrah and start partying. Abram, what it looks like for him to not wait on God in faith is trusting in his own works. He says, I got to help God fulfill the promises. This is what he does. It's aiming at God's end goal of righteousness, but trying to get there by your own means. The New Testament calls this works. This is the Apostle Paul's whole point. You can go read Galatians chapter 4. He says, Ishmael is born by human effort, works, and Isaac is born by God's gracious gift. The only reason anyone can live in God's presence is because of the death of Jesus. That's it. See, without the death of Jesus, God's presence would mean judgment. That's what it would mean. The idea of living in God's presence. Everywhere in the Bible, when you see somebody encounter God in His glory, in spirit, they're terrified because He's holy. And you just automatically sense it when you're in His presence. And we are not holy. We are sinful. And so the presence of God, in one sense, is the most terrifying thing you could ever experience Because his presence means judgment. His presence means wrath. 
So how can people live in his presence? Well, it is because of the substitutionary death of Jesus. The Son of God became a human being, and he took your guilt for sin, and the wrath of God was unleashed on him on the cross. He took the punishment you and I deserve. He died the death that you and I should die so that we could be set free, so that we could be given his righteousness, so that we could be made holy like God. And so to actually live in his presence means we need to trust that work. We do nothing, he does everything. Just like with Isaac. Abram and Sarai, you can't do it. You're 85, dude. (laughs) You're infertile. You can't do it. Stop trying. You have to wait for God. And our salvation, our righteousness, your righteousness, your life, eternal life, your holiness, the fact that God would love you and have a relationship with you, it's not because of you. It's because of Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for this morning. It's a hard passage, Lord. Um, It's just like looking in a mirror. (laughs) God, I see so much of myself in Abram and Sarai and just my tendency to not want to wait my tendency to not trust you when things don't make sense to me, God, my tendency to be passive, not a humble, faith-filled leader who lays his life down. God, I pray that as we just close our time together this morning that we wouldn't be overwhelmed with guilt. God, that we wouldn't just feel bad for ourselves, but God, if there's areas for each one of us in this room that we see the need to change, as far as living in your presence, walking in obedience for men who are married, leading their wives well. God, that we'd be encouraged. We'd be filled with your spirit to trust you, not trust ourselves, and to follow you in faith, to wait, to obey, to live according to your design and according to your commands. God, I pray that we would be a church that waits on you in faith, that trusts you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.